Welcome to the Sunday message from Hollyview Church in Boring, Oregon. We gather each Sunday morning at 10.30 as a worshiping community of Jesus followers on mission to see God glorified in our lives, our cities, and around the world. At Hollyview, the Bible serves as our foundation and guide for both life and ministry. It tells the story of God and the story of us. We believe the better we know the themes and flow of the biblical story, the better we will be able to find our little place in God's grand storyline. Thank you for joining us. And now, here's this week's message from Hollyview Church as guest speaker Eric Wood preaches from Luke chapter 17. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. It's page number 823 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Page 823, Luke chapter 17. Let's read together the first 19 verses. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also. When you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, They were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is God's word. A couple months ago, my family piled in the Grand Caravan, and we drove 2,435 miles over 10 days, touring Glacier National Park, Yellowstone National Park, and Grand Teton National Park. We had a fantastic time viewing some of God's greatest and sometimes God's weirdest acts of creation. 
I mean, for real, Yellowstone has some weird stuff going on. The, the geysers and the boiling mud pots and the smell. Remember the smell, kids? Woo. It was cool and it was weird and wonderful. We even saw a grizzly bear in Glacier. Got to check that one off the list. We put together kind of a rough outline of what we wanted to see in each park on each day. But we were really helped on our journey by a super cool app called Gypsy Guide. Gypsy Guide uses GPS on your phone to trigger an audio tour as you drive through the park. We just had to turn on the app and listen to the guide, and we knew where to go. It told us relevant history of the area. We learned history of the nation at the time that the parks were founded. We learned about Lewis and Clark and what happened to all the beavers in Yellowstone and the controversies surrounding John D. Rockefeller. And it was all really interesting and really helpful and really useful stuff. Yellowstone itself is over 2 million acres. It's gigantic. Without a guide, we would have missed a lot of that cool stuff. We may have even gotten lost. A guide is very helpful. A guide is important. This morning, we get to follow the greatest guide of all. King Jesus tells his disciples, his followers, which includes us, how to live as disciples. How to live as followers of him. And this, this guide from Luke 17 is as relevant today as it has ever been. The focus is humility. Jesus doesn't use that word in this section, but the idea is all over it. God hates pride and exalts the humble. Jesus must have said that in his ministry many times because it's recorded in our Bibles many times. It's twice in Luke. God hates pride and exalts the humble. And humility is needed today. We need to lower the view of ourselves and think of others more. Think how our social media interaction would change if we approached each other humbly. Think how our political discourse would change if we brought more humility to the conversation. Think how your marriage would be if you tried to outdo your spouse in humility. Fewer believers would be walking away from the faith if they thought humbly that is rightly about themselves. So today, we get a guide from our Lord on how to be a disciple, how to live as a disciple, what a disciple of King Jesus looks like. By his grace, he will continue to mold us and form us into humble disciples that bring him glory and increase his kingdom. Jesus is going to show us four characteristics of a disciple, and they form our outline. Number one, a disciple has a humble attitude. That'll be verses one through four. Number two, a disciple has a humble faith, verses five and six. Number three, a disciple practices humble obedience, verses seven and 10. And number four, a disciple practices humble gratefulness, verses 11 through nine. So number one, a disciple has a humble attitude. Look with me again back up to verse four. 
And he said to his disciples, temptations to, to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. In this section of the Gospel of Luke, there are two groups surrounding and following Jesus. He will tell a parable to the Pharisees, and then he will turn to his disciples with a sermon or a message. Back in chapter 15, Jesus tells three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son, and they're all aimed at the Pharisees. Verse 3 of chapter 15 says, he told them this parable. And then in chapter 16, he also said to the disciples. He's going from the Pharisees to the disciples. And while he's talking to the disciples, the Pharisees are right there. They're eavesdropping. But not really, because Jesus intends for them to hear what he has to say to these disciples. Chapter 16, verse 14 says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him, and he said to them, the rest of chapter 16 is aimed at those Pharisees. Now in chapter 17, he's back. He's speaking to his disciples. And the crowd of Pharisees is right there. And they are living, walking sermon illustrations. God hates pride, so don't be like the Pharisees. God exalts the humble, so be the opposite of the Pharisees. They're right there. Jesus says to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come. So let's establish the difference between temptation and sin. Seeing the forbidden fruit is temptation. Wanting the forbidden fruit is sin. Seeing the forbidden fruit is temptation. Wanting the forbidden fruit is sin. We're told here, to live in a way that does not bring temptation to those around us. Live in such a way that does not lead others into sin. How are we doing in not leading people into sin? Is what we're laughing at leading people to sin or holiness? Is what we spend our free time enjoying leading those around us to sin or holiness? Are we leading people into sin? I hope not, because the warning here is deadly serious. Temptations are sure to come. Woe to you if you don't deal with the temptation and you lead people to sin. Woe to you. That's the Old Testament way of saying curse, damnation, destruction come upon you. Bad news is in store for you if you lead people to sin. So bad, in fact, that it would be better if you drown than to continue on the current trajectory. The practice of drowning criminals or enemies, it was used by the Romans and the Jews thought it barbaric. Yet that is a better fate than causing one of these little ones to sin. 
the little ones in verse 2 are not necessarily children. This is a tender word from our Lord about those who are his, about believers. We, if we're living in a way that leads others to sin, woe to us. We are cursed. We are better off drowning in the bottom of the sea than to continue that trajectory and face God's judgment for causing others to sin. Verse 3 begins, pay attention to yourselves. Be on your guard. Watch how you live. Humble disciples don't lead others into sin. Humble disciples lead others out of sin. Verse 3 continues, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If your brother sins, rebuke him. This confrontation is loving and requires humility on our part. We've got to be thinking of others and watching out for their souls. Love your brother, your neighbor, your friend enough to point out where they're missing the mark. Humble disciples lead others out of sin. And the end of verse 3, if he repents, forgive him. That's the goal of the rebuke. The rebuke is loving and earnest in hopes that they repent. If he repents, forgive him. That's it, right? If he repents, forgive him. Actually, that's not it. If he keeps sinning against you and keeps repenting, you keep forgiving. Seven is not a big number. It's the complete number. After all, I need to be forgiven seven times before my first cup of coffee in the morning. Humble disciples forgive easily, quickly, and often. Have a heart of forgiveness. If he repents, forgive him. If he doesn't repent, you can still forgive him. It does your heart no good to hang on to that stuff. That's how bitterness takes root and grows. Have a heart of forgiveness. So the question is, are you withholding forgiveness? Is there someone out there that you're refusing to forgive? Are you waiting until they've paid their penalty, until you'll extend forgiveness? If you are withholding forgiveness, remember your own need of forgiveness. Remember that God has not withheld forgiveness from you. All who believe are forgiven. Understand your own need for forgiveness and willingly and readily offer that forgiveness to others. A disciple has a humble attitude, pursuing holiness by avoiding sin, and humble disciples pursue holiness by dealing with sin. Rebuke, repent, forgive. And we do this together in community. We are concerned with each other's souls. We pursue holiness together, watching out for each other. Sin is contagious, similar to leprosy that we'll see in a few verses. We can't let sin spread through our body. We spot it, we address it, we rebuke, we repent, we forgive. It takes a humble attitude to live this way. Number two, a disciple has a humble faith. Among the group of disciples that Jesus is talking to in verses 1 through 4, 
are the 12, the apostles. And they speak up in verse 5. The apostles said to the, to the Lord, increase our faith. These commands are hard. These demands are too hard to do on our own, by our own strength, with our own willpower. It's hard to have a humble attitude on my own. The apostles are asking, Jesus, will you help us to trust you for the power to live like that? Help us trust you for the strength to forgive and rebuke and live holy lives. Jesus, increase our faith. Now, I think this is both a right request and the wrong request. That's really helpful, right? It's right and it's wrong. It's right in that we need faith to live as humble disciples. We need strength that comes from God to live in a way that doesn't cause others to sin, to rebuke and repent and forgive. It requires faith. But it's the wrong way to phrase the request. I get that based on how Jesus responds in verse 6 and the parable to address the disciples' pride in verses 7 to 10. Living as a humble disciple who rebukes and repents and forgives doesn't require a huge increased faith. Look how Jesus responds in verse 6. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. The mustard seed is tiny. The mulberry tree had a huge root system and was really tough to dig out, even if you had the right tools and the right machinery. Teeny, tiny faith can accomplish the impossible because nothing is impossible with God. That's the point here. Not to go throwing trees around, but that God can do the impossible. The mustard seed of faith connects you with God's tree-moving power. You can live as a humble disciple by believing God for the grace and strength and patience and courage that you need to repent to your friend, to rebuke your spouse, to forgive your neighbor. Jesus is not concerned with the size of your faith, just that your faith is there. For on the other end of faith is the creator king of the universe. It's not great faith that matters. It's faith in our great God. Don't worry about how big or small your faith is. Believe and watch it work. Trust God and do what he says. Humble faith looks to Jesus and is not concerned with size or greatness. A better way to make this request and a prayer that I use often myself is found in Mark chapter 9. A man brings his demon-possessed son to the disciples and they can't cast out the evil spirit. And the man says to Jesus, uh, this is verse 22 of Mark 9, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And here it comes. We're in verse 24. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help 
my unbelief. That's humble faith. The faith is there, but it's lacking. I believe, but I still try to run my own life. I believe, but I still doubt your goodness, or I'm not sure you'll really provide what I need this time. I believe, but it's too awkward to repent to my friend or to rebuke my spouse. I believe, help my unbelief. That request recognizes the weakness and looks to Jesus for help. Increase our faith could lead you to pride. Look how big my faith is. So Jesus addresses that with a parable. This is point number three, verses seven to ten. A disciple practices humble obedience. Verse seven. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? The implied answer here is no. That's not what you would say. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? The implied answer here is yes, that is how you would respond. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? The implied answer here is no. So you also, when you have done all you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. The apostles and we are the servants in this parable. We've worked all day. We come in from the field and we still have work to do. We serve the master dinner and we don't expect to thank you because we did what we were commanded. We have only done what was our duty. A disciple obeys humbly. God has called us to holiness and he's called us to follow him and we do it. We repent, rebuke, and forgive. That's our duty. None of us can make a claim on God because we've gone above and beyond. We can't go above and beyond. We only do what is our duty. Three quick points of application from this parable. Number one, we are duty bound to obey God. We are unworthy servants after all. Number two, we are duty bound to obey God in all things. We are unworthy servants doing all that we're commanded. And number three, we are duty bound to obey God in all things all the time. The harvest is plentiful. There's plenty of work to do. If Jesus were to preach this parable today, he might say, will any of you who have filled out your income taxes mailed them in before the deadline. Will any of you expect a call from the IRS thanking you? Of course not. Paying taxes is our duty. We expect no gratitude if we obey exactly as required. We can expect punishment for failing to perform our duties. Now, admittedly, this is a strange parable. The master seems harsh. He's not even thanking us. We're his servants. We need to remember that parables are meant to teach one main truth. This one, strange though it may be, is to remove pride from us by reminding us that we are unworthy. We have a duty and we must obey. The most beautiful thing about this parable 
is how Jesus is going to flip it on its head. He's the servant king. Yes, we serve humbly, faithfully, and dutifully. The king we serve is not a harsh master. He will reward us for our faithful service. The master-slave relationship was used in a parable back in Luke chapter 12. Verse 35 says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. That, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. The master takes our place. We, the servants, get his privileges and benefits. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. It's the great exchange. He gets our sin, we get his righteousness. He comes and serves us. We're slaves to God, but we're also children of God. He adopted us into his family, so we obey because of this incredible privilege of being his. We are his. We humbly obey. Point four, a disciple practices humble gratefulness. Now we come to a story you might be familiar with. Jesus heals ten lepers. This is a real-life picture of humble attitude, humble faith, and humble obedience. It's not random that this story follows our Lord's teaching on humble discipleship. Here's a real picture of someone with no claim on God, humbly receiving salvation. Verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Back at the end of Luke chapter 9, verse 51 says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And from that point on in Luke, he's kind of going back and forth across the country on his way to the cross. Here in verse 11, we're reminded he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's on a mission. He's going to be taken up, meaning he's going to die and rise and ascend into heaven. So he's on his way to Jerusalem, and he's moving back and forth across the country, and he's passing along between Galilee and Samaria, and outside a village is where you would find the leper colony. Leviticus 13 outlines the laws concerning leprosy. 
Verse 36 says, The leprous person shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Leprosy was contagious. So those afflicted would have to isolate from the rest of the town. This is also why they stood at a distance at the end of verse 12. Then they cried out and they called Jesus Master. This is significant in the Gospel of Luke because only disciples of Jesus call him Master. Seekers call him Teacher. His followers call him Master. So here's a glimpse of tiny little mustard seed faith. These lepers believe that this Jesus is master. He has authority and power. He can help us. They cry out for mercy. They can do nothing about the situation they're in, but the master can. Jesus, master, have mercy on us. Jesus sees them. He says to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. This is also from Leviticus chapter 13. The priest acted as the state health inspector of ancient Israel. The priest could pronounce them clean so that they could re-enter society. He couldn't make them clean. He could affirm that they are in fact clean. But there's a problem here. They're not clean. When Jesus says go, you better go. If the lepers believe Jesus, they will obey. Verse 14 ends, and as they went, they were cleansed. Ten lepers cleansed with a word. The understatement is staggering. <laughs> this is just God being God. As they went, they were cleansed. They head off to show themselves to the priests and get reinstated in their communities and their everyday lives. And then verse 15 says, Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. One of them saw the healing, the gift he had received, and he turned back to the healer, the giver. He turned to Jesus. And he praised God. God is at work in Jesus. And this leper gets it. Jesus is doing the work of God. Verse 16. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. He worships. He falls on his face at the feet of Jesus, giving him thanks. Full of humble gratitude. Verse 16 continues. Now he was a Samaritan. He was an outsider. Really, he was a double outsider. Leprosy drove him outside the village. Being a Samaritan separated him from the people of Israel. In the story of the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, John inserts a parenthetical note in the story, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Samaritans had intermarried with Gentiles and pagans from the surrounding areas. They had their own temple and sacrificial system. They were outsiders. Certainly, according to the Jews, they were outside God's will and God's reach and God's love. Then along comes Jesus. 
to show the world that no one is outside God's reach. No one is outside God's love. Jesus came for the outsider, for the outcast, the forgotten, the rejected, the unclean. No one who cries to Jesus for mercy is turned away. No one. Jesus has three rhetorical questions for the newly healed Samaritan. We're not ten cleansed? You can hear the leper saying, uh, yes, Lord, there were ten of us. Well, where are the nine? Uh, they're heading to the priests, just like you told them to do. Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Ah, so the cleaning, the cleansing, was a test of faith. Nine of them believed enough for physical healing. They got what they were after. The foreigner wanted more. He wanted the healer. Verse 19, Jesus says to him, Rise and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. I hope your Bible has a footnote for verse 19. Look down there at the bottom. I hope it says, your faith has saved you. We have three different words for healing and cleansing in this passage. The word in verse 19 is a different word from the one translated cleansed in verses 14 and 17. It's different from the word translated healed in verse 15. This is the word the angel used when he visited Mary and told her <clears throat> she would bear a son. And the angel says in Matthew 121, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save. That's the word we have here in verse 19. The leper's faith has done the impossible because it reached out to God who does the impossible. He's healed physically, and he's healed spiritually. His faith has saved him. And as a result, he worships, and he gives thanks. He exhibits humble gratitude. He's on his face at the feet of the master. So we've seen that a disciple has a humble attitude, humble faith, humble obedience, and humble gratitude. We live as humble disciples by faith. Faith links us to the creator king, to the master, and accomplishes the impossible. We can repent and rebuke and forgive by faith, by the power that comes from the healer. We pursue holiness together, humbly leading each other out of sin and away from sin. We humbly obey, believing that the master has accepted us into his family and calls us sons and daughters. And as a result, we're grateful. Are we marked by gratefulness? I hope we are. Make your thankfulness known to God and to each other. Be quick with a thank you. If you're not thankful, take some time to consider what God has done for you. There's no greater example of a humble attitude and humble obedience 
than our Savior, Jesus Christ, who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself and obeyed his Father and died on the cross, and he is ready to have mercy on us. If you don't know Jesus, if you haven't been forgiven of your sins, cry out like the, le- like the lepers. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Jesus is merciful and gracious and will answer. He will cleanse you and heal you and save you. And his mercy continues with a guide on how to live as a humble disciple. Our response is humble obedience, praise, and gratitude. May we never cease giving thanks to God for what he has done through Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this guide on how to live as humble disciples. Would you hold us close to you, help us to rely on you. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief. I'm praying in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us for this message from Hollyview Church. We invite you to join us in person for our worship service every Sunday morning at 1030. You can find us on Southeast 257th Avenue, just off of Highway 212 between Boring and Damascus, Oregon. Or find us online at hollyviewchurch.com. Together, we are being shaped by the gospel, rooted in God's word, to share God's grace and truth. Again, whether online or in person, thank you for joining us here at Hollyview Church. Church.